you ready to hit the dusty trail, Harrison fans? Today's episode of the Harrison Podcast is going to take us westward as we explore how the fledgling United States expanded out all the way to the Pacific Ocean. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. A couple of things to get started. First, just in case anyone regularly cuts off the episode before the very end, not saying that any of you do that, mind you, but just in case, I wanted to go ahead and put in my thanks to my audio editing guru, Andrew Foncook, at the beginning of this episode. This is the fifth episode I've collaborated with Andrew on, and having him on board has been a tremendous help in both freeing up some of my time, as well as improving the overall quality of the show. If you are in need of assistance for your next audio project, Andrew can be reached through his email address, Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Second, I'm going to put up some maps on the blog that will hopefully help you to follow along with some of the places we talk about on this episode if you're in need of a visual aid. The blog can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. With that said, let's get going. Westward expansion was a constant in the story of the European colonies established on the eastern seaboard of North America. Indeed, the establishment of the Proclamation Line of 1763 as a restriction on settlement across the Appalachian Mountains in an attempt to prevent conflict with Native American peoples in the Ohio Valley is often noted as one of the many factors that contributed to the American Revolution. Following the war, settlement in the West became a priority for many Americans both in and out of government. However, this westward expansion would also prove to be a fly in the ointment of the new republic, as there would be differences in government approaches to settlement north and south of the Ohio River. An intriguing article on this was written by Andrew R. L. Caden in the June 1992 issue of the Journal of American History, in which Caden argued, quote, that awareness of distinctive regional identities in the trans-Appalachian West originated in response to the frontier policy of the Washington administration. It was competition for the resources of the nation-state, particularly the Army, that laid the foundation for what became the widespread sense that the Ohio was far more than a river. Indeed, the Northwest Territory had been established by the government under the Articles of Confederation in 1787, but it wasn't until 1790 that a territorial government was established for lands south of the Ohio River. Part of this had to do with the cession of rights to these lands by individual states. The royal charters by which the states had been originally established as colonies had extended their borders far beyond what was governable, some to the Mississippi River, others clear across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. Moreover, some of the charter boundaries overlapped one another. Thus, Virginia and Massachusetts claimed some of the same land, while Connecticut claimed some of what is now north-central Pennsylvania, so on and so forth. The states had ceded rights to the land that became the Northwest Territory much earlier than some of the southern states would cede their trans-Appalachian claims. North Carolina wouldn't cede what became Tennessee until December 1789, while it would take even longer to come to an agreement with Georgia over what would become Mississippi and Alabama, and Georgians would prove to be upset about the deal eventually reached as the federal government guaranteed certain lands to be under federal jurisdiction in order to ensure its exclusive use by the Creek Indians. With a small army at his disposal, President Washington chose to focus his martial attentions on pacifying Native Americans in the Northwest Territory, as it was proving easier to develop for settlement. Part of this was a logistical matter. As noted by Leonard White, quote, The Northwest Territory was relatively close to the then-capital Philadelphia, and communications were fairly reliable. Governor William Blount in the Southwest Territory, with the seat of government at Knoxville, was less well-situated. To communicate with Philadelphia in 1792, Blount could count on a period of from three to four weeks each way. 
While I don't want to go too much into detail in this part of the history of Western expansion, as it will be covered in more detail in an upcoming episode of our companion podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, please excuse the cheap plug, but go check out the other podcasts as well, folks. Anyway, while not wanting to go into too much detail, I thought this was important to mention as two themes which will come up time and again in the push to the West are present even at this early stage, namely sectional conflict and conflict with Native peoples. As listeners of this podcast are aware, Harrison's life was in many ways defined by this westward push. He was one of those soldiers that Washington directed into the Northwest Territory to face the Native Americans there, and would ultimately settle there, one of the many folks choosing to make their futures in the West, in what would come to be known as the Great Migration. Harrison would become the governor of the Indiana Territory, and would be in that role when the Louisiana Purchase was made in 1803, which even further expanded the nation's borders west. Harrison would be in military conflict with Indians both before and during the War of 1812. Quote, The census of 1800 identified a third of a million people living beyond the Appalachians. In 1820, the number was over two million. Never again did so large a portion of the nation live in new settlements. As noted by Daniel Walker Howe in his History of the Time Between 1815 and 1848, these new settlers, quote, remain loyal often fiercely loyal to their cultural heritages and resolved to recreate them on the frontier. As a result, geographically distinct culture zones appeared in the West. From the food they ate to the homes they built to their worship practices, these various groups developed quite distinct practices. And even when slavery wasn't a factor and beyond conflicts with native peoples, quote, cultural differences gave rise to political conflicts amongst the new settlers. At times, they did not prove to be one unified group, but rather fell into infighting based on prejudices about one group or another. Likewise, as noted by Howe, quote, although the Great Migration was a success story from the point of view of American national aggrandizement, it did not constitute a success story for all its individual participants. Some prospered in their new homes. Those who did not might end up as tenants or hired laborers, but often they simply moved on. Sixty to eighty percent of frontier residents moved within a decade of their arrival, with a socioeconomic caveat that settlers were less likely to move if they had more wealth. After the War of 1812, what was the West for Harrison and the beginnings of the Republic would begin to be settled, and the settlers would continue past those lands to seek greener pastures elsewhere. However, two events would occur which would hinder the migration flow westward. First, the Panic of 1819 would rock the economic foundation of the United States. It, quote, was the first time that the American public had experienced collectively what would become a recurrent phenomenon, a sharp downward swing of the business cycle. People who would have settled in the West no longer had money with which to buy land as specie payments were suspended, banks failed, and business prospects overall dried up. The West, being a fledgling economy, was hit particularly hard. At around the same time, controversy raged about whether to admit Missouri as a slave state or a free state. It would be the first state fully on the west side of the Mississippi River, and thus represented the next stage in the westward push. But rather than being a moment of national pride around which everyone could rally, it instead became a divisive issue that further exacerbated the existing sectional issues. Ultimately, a compromise was reached, with Missouri admitted as a slave state, but with slavery being forbidden henceforth in the rest of the lands from the Louisiana Purchase above the 3630 latitude line. 
As likely everyone listening to this podcast is aware, this would not be the end of the conflict, but it would allow for settlement of the new western frontiers to continue peacefully for the moment. As the frontier moved further west, the Old West, what we now know of as the Midwest and the Middle Southern states, had to be brought closer to the east, both in terms of national identity and economically. While for the northern states this primarily meant the development of railroads and canals, for the southern states it meant getting rid of unwanted folks on lands that the newcomers wanted for themselves. The native peoples of the Old Southwest had to go. As we mentioned earlier and have detailed in past episodes of the podcast, the Washington administration began pushing in the Midwest to make land cession treaties with natives who were willing to negotiate for new lands for settlements and to have military forces in the area to deal with any deemed unruly or aggressive. This was continued under subsequent administrations, with Jefferson in particular pushing for additional land sessions to be made. But as listeners of this podcast know, the relations with native peoples were not always peaceful. Harrison would be in military conflict with Indians in the Northwest, both before and during the War of 1812. After the War of 1812, Native peoples would no longer be a major force in the Midwest, as many had moved on, either further west or north to Canada. South of the Ohio River, though, Native peoples still controlled a large amount of land, and the Cherokee Nation in particular was becoming well-organized and setting down roots in permanent towns with more centralized governing systems. Whereas white settlers in the South thought that the Native peoples would agree to more land sales after participating in efforts designed to civilize them. In fact, Quote, the more literate, prosperous, and politically organized the Cherokee made themselves, the more resolved they became to keep what remained of their land and improve it for their own benefit. By 1823, the Cherokee Council of Chiefs declared, quote, it is the fixed and unalterable determination of this nation, i.e. the Cherokee Nation, never to cede one foot more of our land. Unalterable met immovable with the election of Andrew Jackson as president in 1828. Following aggressive moves by the Georgia state government and white citizens of the state against the Cherokee Nation following Jackson's election, the Jackson administration put forward the Indian Removal Bill, which, after considerable debate, was passed by Congress and signed by Jackson on May 28, 1830. The Indian Removal Act did not immediately move the native peoples from the east. Rather, it appropriated half a million dollars for the process of negotiating with tribes to exchange land that they currently held in the east with lands further west. There was an understanding, though, that, on the part of the United States government, the negotiations would be aggressive and pressure would be applied to the native peoples to agree to the relocation. Plans were made that summer for how the land in the west would be divided up among the groups identified as, quote, the five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole tribes. But there were still efforts being made to stop the Indian Removal Act from being implemented. A case was brought forth before the Supreme Court in March 1831, the case of Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, which was an attempt to seek the court's guidance on the state of Georgia's rights, or lack thereof, to establish jurisdiction over Cherokee lands that fell within the state's borders, which had been part of the impetus and justification for the Indian Removal Act. One of the representatives arguing for the Indian Removal Act had built upon the Jackson administration's arguments that it was designed to help the native peoples to allow them to thrive on their own terms away from white government rather than being constantly threatened and tricked by white prospectors, settlers, and governments. Quote, it is a matter of death, he said. 
pass the bell on your table and you save them, reject it, and you leave them to perish. The Jackson administration had made it clear that they would not consider the Cherokee Nation or any other Indian nation as a sovereign nation on its own right, and the Supreme Court in Cherokee Nation v. Georgia agreed. Chief Justice John Marshall read his decision, which three of his colleagues had concurred in, that the Cherokees were not a, quote, foreign state, as defined in Article Three of the Constitution, which had been their justification for taking the case to the Supreme Court, and thus the court had no jurisdiction to rule. Meanwhile, the first Cherokee natives relocated to new lands designated as Indian lands in what is now Oklahoma in the winter of 1831-1832. The winter was noted as being abnormally severe, so their conditions for the trip were even more harsh than they would have been otherwise. Though it was only 380 individuals to begin with, all involved knew that if the process was to be halted, time was of the essence. Hope had developed that a second case before the Supreme Court in 1832, the case of Wooster v. Georgia, would have a more favorable outcome. And, in terms of the ruling, it did. By a vote of 5 to 1, the court ruled that Georgia laws requiring a license for white individuals to reside in Cherokee territory were void, as they had not only violated treaties previously entered into with the Cherokees, but also, quote, the contract and commerce clauses of the Constitution and the sovereign authority of the Cherokee Nation. The Wooster decision firmly established that Native peoples had, quote, the right to retain independent political communities. There was just one problem with this ruling. It required the executive branch to enforce it, and that was something that neither Andrew Jackson nor his successor, Martin Van Buren, were willing to do. Thus, their two administrations pursued the Second Seminole War in order to force the Seminoles out of the Florida Territory, despite their staunch opposition to relocation and the Trail of Tears mandatory removal, which would result in the death of 4,000 Cherokees out of the 18,000 forced to relocate. The lands of the plains that they found in the West were far different than what many native peoples had been accustomed to previously, and their relocation displaced some tribes already in the area. Overall, the painful and tragic process of Native American relocation to the West would stand in stark contrast to the hordes of white settlers voluntarily rushing to populate choice new locations in the West. The Spanish region of Tejas was just not growing. By 1821, more Mexican citizens were leaving it than settling in it, and this posed a security risk for Mexico, as Americans had already had designs on it, and the official border had only been settled between Spain and the United States in 1819, with the U.S. renouncing its claim on Texas. However, with the Mexican War of Independence underway, it was quite possible that if something wasn't done soon, between the threat of Indian attacks and American designs on Tejas, whatever authority was finally established after the revolution, no matter how it went, would no longer be in control of those lands. Thus, the decision was made to grant the petition of Moses Austin to settle 300 American families in Tejas. Now, on the surface, this seems like an insane solution. Invite the Americans in order to keep the U.S. out? But the strongest proponent for this, the Baron de Bastrop, successfully argued that, if managed correctly, this would establish a buffer zone of Americans who profess their loyalty to the Spanish crown between the Spanish-occupied lands and the United States, and that this would thwart any American designs for invasion. They'd have to kill Americans first before they could get to the heart of Mexico. Though Moses Austin would not love to see the settlement plan carried through, his son, Stephen Austin, 
would pick up the mantle and lead the settlers to Texas. This plan might have worked if those 300 families had been it. However, obviously, the Spanish authorities had not paid attention to American history to date. Where one settler went and was able to lay down roots, more would follow. American settlers continued to stream across the Sabine River into Tejas, while few native Mexicans would cross the Rio Grande to relocate. More and more, Tejas was looking like an American colony, with 20,000 Anglo-Americans and their slaves in the territory, and overwhelming the Spanish-speaking population by a ratio of 5 to 1. The Mexican government halted all immigration in 1830, but this only lasted until 1834. The business of settlement was just too good to resist. However, as happened in other tales of Western settlement, cultures began to clash, culminating in the Texas Revolution. Now, the Texas Revolution is too complicated of a topic to properly address in this episode, but what you need to know is that even though the Revolution established Texas as an independent nation, there are folks both in Texas and the United States who wanted to see it brought into the Union. However, there were two main problems with that. First, an annexation of Texas would likely lead to war with Mexico, as the two were still in conflict. And second, Texas was slave territory, and would thus come into the Union as a slave state, as abolitionism was gaining ground by this point in the national arena. This became a quite contentious issue. The tipping point arguably came when the British began to express an interest in Texas which was something that the United States could not allow, as they were already in contention with the British for a territory further to the north and west. As mentioned earlier, early royal charters establishing the various colonies on the North American continent and claims of sovereignty made on official expeditions were sometimes conducted in such a way as to overlap jurisdictions and cross borders. Not only did this occur within the formerly British colonies, but also with the colonies of different nations. Thus, the early 19th century found Great Britain, Russia, Spain, and the United States all claiming the Oregon Territory on the Pacific coast of North America. In practice, however, it was the British and the Americans who were most active about their claims to the area. The Anglo-American Convention, signed in 1818, established a joint occupation of the territory, which would initially last 10 years, but would ultimately still be in place when William Henry Harrison took office in 1841. John Quincy Adams would play a leading role in strengthening the U.S. claim to Oregon when he managed to convince the Spanish in 1819 to relinquish their claim to Oregon. Adams, like others both in and out of the government, were increasingly envisioning a future for America that stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Indeed, during and after the Panic of 1837, that dream became less about a grandiose nationalistic vision and one of individual survival. As the economy contracted, businesses closed, and jobs were lost, people began making their way west to Oregon, California, and Texas, where land was cheap and families could start a new life. By going across borders through legal and sometimes extra-legal means, these settlers were one by one establishing a de facto American authority from sea to shining sea. We all know how this story turned out, so let's leave things here for today. I know there is much more to discuss about westward expansion, but next time I'd like to turn our attention to one of those leaders involved in the debates over westward expansion and what it would entail for the future of the United States. This man is by far one of the most fascinating characters in American political history, and as he's been mentioned frequently on this podcast, I felt it was about time we made him the focus of an episode. That's right, it's finally time to talk about Harry of the West, otherwise known as Henry Clay of Kentucky. Until then, 
If you have any questions, comments, or would like to make a suggestion of a topic you'd like to be the focus of a future episode, please feel free to reach out to me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Source information for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's blueberry without the e's, dot com. This podcast is also available on iTunes and Stitcher, if you're not listening from there already. Thank you so much for listening, friends, and until next time, take care.